I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The people always talk about black folks lazy. They tell me they don't want to work. Well, have you ever thought about black folks just tired of working for free or working for nothing? You know, you stole wages from them when they were slaves. You stole it under the uh, sharecropping system. So that's how the prison industries came about. Whatever industry there was, they used slave labor. Almost 160 years ago, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, declaring the end of slavery and that enslaved persons in the Confederacy, quote, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free, end quote. If American history has taught us anything, it's taught us that it's full of lies. Because almost 160 years after that document was signed, slavery persists in a new, depraved system. One that guarantees black people will never truly be free as long as it's around. I'm Jay from Push Black, and today on Black History Year, we're talking about the origins of prison and how it's used as a form of modern day slavery. To break down the history of this phenomenon, we have Dr. Byron Price joining us. Dr. Price is a professor of public policy and administration at Medgar Evers College. For decades, his scholarship and research has explored the prison pipeline and prison privatization, a subject on which he's written several books, including Merchandising Prisoners and Prison Privatization, the many facets of a controversial industry. Slavery never ended. And in its simplest terms, Dr. Price will explain how that is and offer a solution that our community can begin to apply right away. Let's get into it. What does black liberation look like to you? I think black liberation gets to what Marcus Garvey, he asked, what was the black man's government? To me, that's liberation. We have our own inf- institutions and structures. We have our own uh, economic system. I think anything that gives black people agency, then that's liberation. We should control our schools. I mean, how do you get people to educate your kids that enslave your kids and made it illegal for your kids at one point to get an education? And so you continue to go to the same people for your health care. And you wonder why you're dying from COVID and a lot of other different things. I mean, when you think about how police are shooting us down, we should be hiring our own police force to police our communities like they do. To me, that's black liberation, you know, having this sort of independence, being uh, self-contained within the U.S. Okay. But I think far too often we like in many respects out of like African countries in regards to like our institutions, especially historically black colleges and universities, we rely on aid as opposed to de- developing our own resources. And so when you give them aid, you have no incentive to develop your own economic systems and institutions and so forth. 
I mean, you think about all the resources that we collect as Greeks, churches, none of that money is circulating through our communities. And so we don't own it. We don't control anything. And we don't even uh, control how we are viewed in the world. To me, that's Black liberation, controlling all our institutions and having agency. To me, that seems completely logical and completely within the realm of possibility. But it seems that there's many in our community who couldn't even imagine a world like that. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, socialization is powerful. You know, you think about all the imagery, you know, when you go to church, you saw all these pictures of Jesus, Jesus white. Everything is uh, beautiful, is white. So if God is white, then white folks should think they should be on top, for lack of a better word, you know, because God is white. You know, and then when you look at it, uh, you think about all our institutions, you see all the white CEOs, you see how many black CEOs do you see? You see all the athletes, they get our kids thinking about athletes, but only a few people going to make it in the NFL and the NBA. But who do you see when you see these things? So, you know, we don't celebrate black excellence. I mean, it's like it's a saying, if you've been given bread for being stupid, you may learn to despise instruction. So I think we ought to think about how to sort of create our own. I go back to us building our own institutions and systems and controlling our economics for us to be able to sort of change, you know, the views of America and, and, and the views of the world. But I think most importantly, the views of ourselves. See, we don't love ourselves, you know, we don't love ourselves. And, and that's reflected in everything we, we do. I mean, even the kind of roles that we take, you know, in Hollywood, you shouldn't take a role, you know. Like, you know, they talk, a lot of people talk about Chadwick Boseman, how he was, you know. And like the people are, are getting upset about Anthony Hopkins uh, winning the war. Well, his brother said, well, Chadwick w- wouldn't be upset about that because it didn't mean anything to him. So the things that they place value on, we've incorporated their value system as opposed to those Afrocentric principles that we used to embrace, you know, before integration and before we were enslaved, you know, like the ancient Egyptians who were black, you know, they said to be educated was to be more godlike. And so I think that's why they were able to build those pyramids and orient them toward true north when you don't even have the instruments. You know, they, and so the white folks said, well, it had to be aliens built that because the black folks couldn't have built that because they can't figure out the technology. And so when you think about the Dogon tribe in West Africa uh, plotted the star Cyrus before Galileo invented the telescope. And so the black folks have always been great. But as Tony Browder said, we teach others what others teach us what we taught them. And so now we don't think we can learn math and a lot of other different things when we invented this stuff. Make that connection for us between the work you're doing and how that could lead to liberation and controlling our own institutions and systems. I work with a STEAM uh, group where we get kids uh, 12 years old and work with them and teach them about entrepreneurship because I think entrepreneurship is key for us to sort of uh, make a difference with with respect to incarceration. And so one of the reasons why I got interested in incarceration, because I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I never saw my pops, so I was 26. And one day I asked my mother, uh, some other, where were all the adult males? Uh, at the time I grew up in this project, it was profiled on the History Channel. Lamont Gardens, this group came out called Love, Murder, and Gangsters. They used to rob the drug dealers. So like around 1983, I came across a news article about Corrections Corporation of America, which is now Core Civic. 
and how uh, their stock traded on the stock exchange. And for some reason, I remember that question I asked my mother about where were all the dull males. I had a sort of an epiphany. I said, well, you know, they were incarcerated because they basically turned them into commodities. I want to dig into the work that you have done around prison labor. So let's start with some of the history there. Could you tell us about the transition from chattel slavery to convict leasing following emancipation? Well, you know, uh, in the 1800s, basically the sheriff used to lease out uh, convicts. Private prison really kind of started in the 1800s. And then, you know, you talk about the the convict leasing system. I think even I give you a little history about Corrections Corporation of America. Before founding Corrections Corporation of America, which is a $1.8 billion private prison, now it's known as Core Civic, the guy Don Hutto ran a cotton plantation the size of Manhattan. And there were black convicts who were forced to pick cotton from dawn to dust for no pay. When they freed us, basically they created laws like uh, laudering, uh, vagrancy, and so forth. And so what they did is they knew they weren't going to hire us, so if you couldn't find a job, the sheriff arrest you and charge you with vagrancy and give you sentence you to five to 10 years. Then let's say after you didn't worked off like five years, you had a 10 year sentence. Then Mr. Charlie could come over there and pay off your bail. And then you owe him 10 years. And so that's how they reincarcerated us because they wouldn't hire us. And they created laws to take advantage of our unemployment to reincarcerate us to take advantage of their labor. Now, that's, that's, that's always interesting to me how that transition happened. And from what I understand, for example, the life expectancy under enslavement was actually longer than under convict leasing. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Because you, you think about, you know, the sweltering heat in Alabama and Mississippi. You're working from the dusk to dawn in the summer in Mississippi. You're up into 100 degrees, you know, and, you know, they ain't giving you the water. They're abusive. You break in that back breaking work, you know, your body broke down. And think about the harsh treatment you got and think about the food that they fed you. Was it harsher treatment than under slavery? I think it was still brutal and humane, but I think some people are more inhumane than others. But how do you sort of like uh, put degrees to inhumanity, you know, into abuse and slavery? You know, it's all the same, but I think, yeah, definitely some people are far, far more indifferent. You know, if you die, okay, just burn him and just slot somebody else in there. Yeah. And that, uh, I think that last point gets to some of the economic rationale behind this, right? And you mentioned they looked at us like a commodity. Can you dig more into the economics behind this system? That's why the Civil War was about slavery. When you freed the slaves, you destroyed the South economic system. The South was built off of slavery, even under the sharecropping system. You know, they became in more debt. You know, suppose when you free them, they could work with you, but they became more in debt. And the, and the courts basically wouldn't support you. So you couldn't sue a white man, although they did you wrong. And then they could take your land also. I think it was somewhere in Virginia where they said they trying to give them their money back from some land that they took. So, you know, I think in any aspect of uh, manufacturing, whatever industry there was, they used slave labor to sort of prop up their industry. But most of it, especially the, the hard work, the people always talk about black folks lazy. They tell me they don't want to work. Well, have you ever thought about black folks just tired of working for free or working for nothing? You know, you stole wages from them when they were slaves. You stole it under 
the uh, sharecropping system. You don't pay them now. Uh, Devon Pega, the brilliant scholar who, who, who passed, uh, she's at Princeton. She wrote a book, The Mark of a Criminal Record, where you and I don't have a record. I have a PhD. Well, a white male with a felon can get a job before you and I. Okay. So we think about all these things that keep black people out of the system. So now they're putting them back in jail. So they created the prison industries. Question. I think it was 1933, the government created this system as government. They made furniture for the uh, U.S. government, prisoners. They made furniture for them, and they did everything for the government. The government created it. That's how the prison industries came about, okay, because the government created a agency to exploit prison labor. And so then the states began to create prison industries, so they make license plates, they make everything. So they institutionalize convict labor. They exploited the labor and they've been doing it since the 1800s and, and even before then. You mentioned 1933 and when this officially got started under law, make that connection between mass incarceration Think about economics, you know, uh, full employment. When you read that formula, say at any given time, 5.5% of the population to be unemployed. That's still considered full employment. So that's 300 million people. So what's 5.5% of about 300 some million people? About 15 million. Yeah, a little more, right? Mm-hmm. So, but when you think about blacks, though, that means you probably, that's probably twice. Twice that number. See, that's the reported number of unemployed. But what's the unreported number, which is much higher? You know, black males have depression level area unemployment. Okay, during the Great Depression. So when you think about uh, how they privatize probation, parole, even when you take a drug test, what they want to do is violate you as well. So, you know, you can't find a job. So why do these people get to, to make billions of dollars off of your labor, but then you can't use any of that money? Then you've uh, accumulated so much, so they suspend your driver's license. So the only ID you got is a Department of Corrections ID, and you go apply for a job. They ask you for your ID. You think you're going to get a job. So when you think about how you know the system is sort of threading uh, a web for you to make sure that you return. So even the drug tests. Okay, probation is privatized. So now they're shifting all these fees, court costs, everything to you. You don't have no money. You can't find a job. These crazy Congress people didn't even want to give people six hundred dollars. And I mean, the whole economy, everything was shut down. They didn't want to give people six hundred dollars. And so what are you going to do at the end of the day? You know, most people just out here trying to take care of their family and survive. Okay, a lot of people don't give up. So when you think about it, you have to go to the underground economy to, to make money. But, you know, the economy that's above ground is criminal, too. But because they say it's not criminal, you know, just like murder, they when the state do it, what is, uh, you know, it's a death penalty. But everything we do, they criminalize and everything they do, they sanitize I 
think you've laid out clearly like all the evidence that there's certain groups, companies, individuals that benefit from this. But what can we point to to say this was an intentional act to use black labor in this way and to criminalize blackness to use black labor in a certain way? Well, I just think if you look at the laws or when you go back and do the research, look at the laws. So if you so you so people were working for you, they were slaves, then you freed them. Then you put laws in place like vagrancy, like I talked about, lottery. So you created laws that basically targeted black people. So when you think about all these laws that have been put in place, but even look at the crack laws. Now, there's no pharmacological difference between crack cocaine and powder to cocaine, although they tell you they are. But why was the ratio 100 to 1? That's because black and brown use uh, crack cocaine and white folks use powder cocaine. But here's the thing. This uh, pinky size crack cocaine rock will get you five years guaranteed, first offense. You know how much of powder cocaine it'll take you to get a five-year sentence? 50 grams of uh, powder cocaine, which $20 street value to maybe a $100,000 street value. But the part of the problem also is uh, the prosecutor, because see, with crack cocaine, they sentence you in the federal courts. That's where the sentencing guidelines kicked in. So if you're white, if you had crack, just like Jeb Bush's daughter who had it in the rehab, they sentenced her in the state court where the federal sentencing guidelines don't kick in. You could get probation in the, in the state. But with us, they would sentence us on the federal. And then they lobby for laws like three strikes and you're out, truth and sentencing. So black folks don't have the social capital. Now, when you look at other people, when you think about how they uh, prosecute the law, look at these police killings. We were surprised uh, that Chauvin uh, got convicted. And I know I'm digressing a little bit, but these people can shoot a 100 people and they still come out alive. Okay, but so the system, if you look at all the laws and so forth, the laws are structured to make sure they maintain the social order. You know, social control has been around forever. And that's what policing is about. They talk about community policing. No, it's really about keeping us confined and control. And so you ask asking for specific policy. I think if you just go down the line, like I just named a couple of them, you know, you think about like even a um, payer grant. If you have a drug conviction, you can't get financial aid, but you could be a murderer, rapist, or a pedophile and you can get financial aid, you know, because black and browns get targeted with the drugs. So think about that. that that's very discriminatory. So, you know, you have little weed. Now, think about all the brothers and sisters, they locked up for marijuana. Now they've decided to, uh, it's okay to have marijuana. They've decriminalized marijuana. So are you going to pay them people back for all that time they did in jail? You know, some of them were kingpins selling marijuana. So why won't they fund their business as uh, restitution? You know, because you've taken years from their lives, when they, especially during their earning potential, when a lot of them went in young, or even like when you think about the courts, they talked about what Ferguson, look how they even just minor stuff like traffic citations and so forth. A lot of the people in Ferguson were poor. So now you compounding the problem. I get picked up on a warrant, traffic warrant, and then you keep me in jail. So I lose my job for a hundred dollars traffic citation. Then I wind up get staying in jail. Look at Khalifa Browder. He just stayed in three years, committed suicide. So what I'm saying is you just think about how they're shifting the cost. 
you know, shifting the burden of incarceration to the people that are incarcerated. Traffic tickets, parking tickets, pay for probation, parole, drug testing. So they're shifting all these costs, court costs, everything is being shifted, and I don't have money. So then now you sort of violate me on my probation and parole because I don't have money. So I'm going back to jail. So there are a lot of discriminatory uh, things that are built in there. And I think it's clear that it's rigged against us. So what would you say are some of the high level solutions that need to happen on an institutional level? Well, I think one of the things that should happen, I think the HBCU should come back. And, you know, most of these young men and women that are incarcerated, they come back to us. And I think HBCUs, historically black colleges, have done a poor job of reclaiming. See, you ain't got to bring all of them on campus. There are a lot of people in your communities that are doing good work. So there could be satellite campuses for some of them. You know, some of the ones that may be a little bit more violent. You know, it'd be kind of hard to justify the parents bringing them. But like I know I used to teach at Texas Southern University. They had the Shape Center. And uh, the brother there done outstanding work. You had a nation of Islam, a lot of these other people where they have campuses where we could uh, offer good degrees and certificate programs to them and, and, you know, bring them back so they can get education. Not necessarily to go get the four-year degree, but I think we had to do around vocational education as well. Okay. So I think we have to educate first and foremost. And, you know, I think we have to create programs for ex-offenders and returning offenders like uh, the Peace Corps and so forth, you know, where they do work in the community and work with some of these young kids and we pay them a little stipend and then they get to have money. You know, you know what I'm saying? We need to stop giving Israel, you know, billions of dollars. We need to stop giving all these other aid to other places and do it and, and provide this aid to educating our own kids, providing jobs for our own kids. I don't have anything against Israel and all these people receiving aid, but why are we giving them so much money? Then when, when it came time to give Americans uh, two or three hundred dollars for the pandemic, they balk at it. Israel come ask the United States for five hundred uh, billion. We give it to them. So we need to do some high level stuff. I think first we need to uh, start taking care of our own and creating uh, education opportunities, employment opportunities. Our best and brightest minds is just like the football. It used to be in the swag. Now they all go to all the big colleges. All our brilliant people at Stanford and, you know, but back in the day, they were right there at uh, Tuskegee with uh, Booger T. Washington. Okay, George Washington Carver. Du Bois was at uh, Atlanta University, which is now Clark at Un Atlanta University. So I think, you know, we have to go back to sort of like, again, our institutions. So I just think we have to do a better job of thinking about um, how we're going to organize. You know, I'm tired of people talking. It's time to execute and to implement and to strategize. We need to lay it out and we need to execute it. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. 
Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tate, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.